Today we're reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and you can find that on page 1783 of the Pew Bibles. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Morning. It's good to see you all here today. Welcome to the second Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, it's not going to be a Pentecost sermon today, but I do just want to remind you that this is where we're going to be until November. Remember every week, every Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, to wait for the Holy Spirit, for, for strength, for power, for guidance. Um, this morning, I was just kind of meditating on those early chapters of Acts where Jesus, who's about to return to the Father, looks at the disciples and says, not, I've taught you everything you need to know, now go and do it. He doesn't say, I've trained you well, you're ready. There's the harvest. He says, go and wait. And that, that's really, really challenging for me because if you're like me, sometimes it can be tempting to think that knowing the right thing is enough. Or if you're like me, you would think that the length of time that you've spent as a Christian disciple should be what qualifies you to live a good life of discipleship. But Jesus says, no, go and wait, go and wait for the Spirit. Go and wait for the Spirit. So please, set aside extra time this week simply to wait and to acknowledge your dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's true that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you that you do send the Spirit and that you give gifts to your people for the edification, the upbuilding of us all. But Lord, we, we stop right now and we acknowledge that you are the one who makes every good thing possible, that every good thing comes from you, and especially teaching. Our minds are not wise enough to discover your truth and our hearts aren't good enough soil that if we didn't leave them until we would automatically even recognize the good things that you speak. So today, Lord, speak to me and speak through me what you want said and for all of us, make us ready to receive the good things that you have for us. Help it to bear good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Is anyone else kind of an amateur history buff? Like, you know, if you're flipping through channels and you come across the History Channel, you might actually pause and linger there to see if there's something better than ancient aliens on. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoy studying history, uh, even sort of like recent American history. And one of my favorite moments in American history, or at least in the last century, is that moment when Kennedy stands up in front of Congress and he says, we choose to go to the moon. Can you, can you like picture that speech in your head with me? And for me, whenever I hear Kennedy say, we choose to go to the moon, the first place my mind runs is to some back office room in NASA who, where nobody was consulted about whether they could go to the moon or not. 
Kennedy didn't give them eight years of prep to say, get ready, we're, I'm gonna tell them on this date that you guys are gonna send us to the moon. Can you imagine how your jaw would drop if you just found out that your job was now to put people on the moon from Earth? And as, I love that. There's just something, there's something so beautiful about being asked to do a really hard thing and then to have to figure out how to make it run. Uh, so how did they go about doing it? And they, I would say, based on what little I know about the space program, that they used some principles that folks in like education or project management today would call backwards design. They started with somebody giving them the perfect goal. You have to take a human being, send them to the moon, have them walk around for a while and come back, and by the way, the human being has to survive. That's the goal. And then you have to work backward from there by steps to figure out a way to actually bring that about. And that's why the first space mission was not Apollo 11. That's why we started with a bunch of Mercury launches and then a bunch of Gemini launches, and then a whole bunch more Apollo launches before finally Neil Armstrong takes that big step. Now, let me just quickly recap last week's sermon so you see where I'm going with this. If you were here last week, you would have known that the big point that I brought out from Philippians 1 is that if you are a Christian, you can be confident at all times that God is working in you, bringing you to completion, to perfection, to wholeness. And if you wonder what that wholeness looks like, it's Jesus himself. So that every time you read the Gospels, if you wonder where you're going, when you see Jesus, you kind of see your own future autobiography being read back to you. And this is the Christian definition of what it means to flourish as a human being, to be Jesus' disciple who becomes like him in every way. But it can be really easy to get discouraged along the way, right? If you've been at it, if you've been plugging away as a disciple for any length of time, you find that it's, it's not easy, that it, the road does grow long, and that our legs do get tired. So, Philippians 1 is real important to come back to again and again and again, because it reminds you of this big thing, that it's God who is at work in you. That you're not left to your own devices to bring yourself to completion and perfection. When you find that you struggle, what you can do is you can turn to him and be confident in his great gracious power. But here's the natural question that comes from that point. Okay, so God is at work in us and he's bringing us to perfection and completion in Jesus. What, is, what does that look like? If becoming perfect and complete in Jesus is the moonshot, what are the backward stages that we have to go through to go from where we are now to eventual completion in him? So. If you still have your Bibles open, you could keep them there. What I'm going to do is just kind of work through these verses backwards. <laughs> Assuming that the glory of God and perfect identity in Christ is where we're headed, and we're gonna talk about how every one of the big ideas that Paul raises leads us up eventually, inexorably, to that perfect completion. So let's start with glory. Why did the USA bother to send Neil Armstrong to the moon to begin with? And I think if you want to answer that question, you need a wider context than just to say, well, Kennedy thought it would be cool. In the 60s, we're in like, the depths of the Cold War. The whole globe is gripped with this question about how they should organize themselves politically, what sort of system of government and social life will maximize human potential, will make it best for all of us to live out whatever time we have on the earth. It's communism versus democracy and hot wars and cold wars. 
The space race wasn't just about technology. The space race was about human nature. And so we get this intense competition between the USA and the Soviet Union. And all of these nation states are really pushing themselves to excel in, for example, physics and rocket technology. But it's not just because there are boys who like to play with toys, it's because there were really big geopolitical questions at stake. And it, I once heard a physicist make this point. Maybe it's something that they learned in the course of working like on space pro uh, programs in the Cold War, but I can't remember exactly the source. But this physicist said that the sort of physics that you have to do to launch a rocket into space is fun and fascinating. You learn a ton about the natural world, but it points you to a bigger question that physics can't answer, which is, why is there something instead of nothing? Physics can teach you how to manipulate the many somethings that we find, but it can't tell you why they're there. And this is one reason why I like to be a Christian, is because Christianity has a direct and really profound answer to the question, why is there something instead of nothing? And its answer is the glory of God. So for example, if you were to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah says, uh, and I'm quoting from verse six and following, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is a point that God makes again and again about creation and also about human beings and their place within creation. That they don't exist for themselves, that nothing exists for themselves, but that the heavens declare the glory of God. So, when Paul says that the end result and goal of our perfection is going to be God's glory, he is saying, without directly saying it, that you are going to perfectly flourish as a human being in the order of creation. And this is the point to your life. If you ever wonder, you were created to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John 15, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you're like me, at least on first hearing, that doesn't immediately sound like great news, that you were created for God's glory. Because we live in an age, let's face it, of exploitation. We live in an age where it's common for the CEOs of major corporations to, for example, uh, lay off a bunch of employees in order to strengthen their bottom line, and everybody knows full well that by strengthening the bottom line to that extent, that CEO is going to get a seven-figure bonus. God, thank, thank him, is not like that Fortune 500 CEO. When God is glorified, he works it out so that we share in the bonus, not so that we get left on the cutting room floor. God's glory is your and my greatest good. He says in Isaiah that he won't give his glory to anybody else, and that's true, but he created us to share in his glory with him, and you could look at a, a number of biblical texts to prove that point. 2 Thessalonians 2, why did he call you through the gospel? Here's the answer, so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, again, if we suffer with him, that is with Jesus, we will be glorified with him. John 17, Jesus is about to depart to the Father, and this is what he prays. He says to the Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. God's glory is our greatest good. So when we achieve our final end as human beings of giving him glory, 
We couldn't do anything better for ourselves. Okay, how do we get there? If that's the end, the goal, the moonshot, the, like, the, the real point to this whole exercise, how does it happen? Um, Paul gives us some really illustrative words. He talks about being innocent and being righteousness, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. And those, those words stop me up short in my tracks because every time I hear the word righteousness in the Bible, this is the text from Romans that comes to my mind. That there's none righteous, no, not one. And you, know, and you keep going on in Romans and you hear that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what does it mean actually to fall short of the glory of God? It means that you've lived your life unrighteously in such a way that you haven't actually produced glory for God that you're supposed to share in. Righteous individuals are rare. I mean, for me, when I hear the Bible talk about someone who's innocent and righteous, I think about them as being about as remarkable as you and I would think an astronaut is remarkable. Someone who stands out for that kind of excellence and character and knowledge and skill. So I think about folks like Neil Armstrong. I think about who he was before he made it to the moon. Again, if some of you are history buffs, you may know more about Armstrong's life than I do, but the moment from Armstrong's life that always sticks with me isn't actually the moon landing. It's what happens in a much earlier mission where Armstrong is going up to prove for the first time that the United States can dock one spacecraft with another one in orbit and get them to link up so that they could eventually go to the moon. And what happens as soon as he links up is that one of the thrusters on his spacecraft malfunctions and it starts to bank. And they assume that the problem is, oh, there's something wrong with the spacecraft that we just hooked up to, right? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna undock, come at it again, just make sure everything's in working order. So they undock, but it turns out there's actually a problem with the thruster on their craft, so now they start to spin faster and faster and faster and faster because there's no friction to slow them down. So eventually they get to the point where they're rotating 360 degrees every second with nothing to slow them down. I mean, just try it right now. See if you can stand up and spin one revolution per second. Tell me how long you can hang with it. But what Armstrong manages to do is stop the spin and initiate an emergency landing, and he brings the craft home safely. That's the kind of remarkable feat of salvation that I think about when I hear the words innocent and righteous. Because that's what sin does to all of us. It puts us into a steep bank and spins us around so we don't know which end is up. So how on earth do you manage to go from the sort of spin that's gonna make you puke or black out to getting your craft back stable and back on the ground. Because this is the call, right? I mean, Matthew 5, Jesus says to all of us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 7, love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians and Romans, you have to be a person of perfect love because love fulfills the law of God. So, Thank God that Jesus is our Neil Armstrong, right? The fruit of righteousness that Paul talks about in Philippians 1 is not the fruit that we produce on our own. It's the fruit that comes through Jesus. Because Jesus is in us, working through us, working on our behalf, and we can rely on his power. Because the Holy Spirit that he told us to wait for is his spirit so that we can actually go about and do the good works that he prepared for us to walk in. And the primary way that this happens is through what we call grace. And if you remember last week, the way I define grace is basically God's gift of himself and his own nature to us so that we can share in it and become who he is and do what he does. 
So if that's righteousness, the doing what God does, I just want to say really quickly, innocence is kind of the flip side of that coin. If righteousness is actively doing the works of God, innocence means avoiding the opposite, the opposite kinds of works. And it takes every bit as much of the power of Christ in you and through you to do it. All right, for the sake of time, I have to move on. I could say so much about innocence. But here's the catch. Doing the right thing, fulfilling God's commandments, assumes that we actually know, that we understand what God is saying to us, what's good, what's bad, what's not, what's in between. And this is something that human beings tend to struggle with. But why exactly is it that the first temptation that humanity succumbs to in the garden is the temptation of the promise that we will actually know what's good and what's evil and be like God? This is something that we all really desire and that we always find just a little bit elusive. If there's something out there to be known, we instinctively want to know it. I mean, and I think about all of the knowledge advancement that it took to send an astronaut to the moon. It took advances in rocket physics and engineering and computer science. I mean, even our understanding of human biology gets pushed to new limits. We would not have computers like we have them today if we hadn't been working on the microchips that it took to send rockets to the moon out of range of like guidance from the earth. Our knowledge, our structures of knowledge, the way we go about interacting with the world, the way we go about determining what's true, what's false, what's good, what's bad, what's real, what's not, all of that changes for us when we come into relationship with Christ, when we find that his grace and power is at work within us. And at the risk of scaring you away, I want to give it sort of a big word definition. And that big word is theology. We live in a time when we assume that theology belongs in universities and seminaries, and it's the sort of thing that only pastors and professors have to think about. Actually not true. Theology is for every Christian. This is what theology is. Theology is when your human reason encounters the power of the gospel. And Christ within you starts to transform and renew your mind so that when you think about yourself and about God and about the world around you, you start to see and understand it the way that he does. Every Christian is a theologian. But that doesn't mean that it isn't still really tricky or that there isn't growth in it. And this is one of the reasons why Paul prays that the Philippians would have more of it. Because we live in a world where it's very difficult still to discern what's good and what's bad. And it's even trickier still once you've agreed on some things that are good to understand which one is more important than the other. Uh, There's a really good book by a psychologist uh, named Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind where he, he asked this question, why are people who are generally pretty good people still divided about politics? Why is politics in the West, like in a place like America, so tribal today? And part of his answer is that we, we value different moral goods in different orders. We, we agree on what's good for the most part, but we make some people place one good as more foundational and other people make another good more foundational. So let me give you an example. What, what Haight says is that the folks who lean left, the progressives, tend to value policies that alleviate harm for hurting people and that improve quality of care for people who can't do it for themselves. Now, I've never yet met the person who leans right or conservative who is so cold-hearted that they would say, forget those poor people. 
But on the other hand, what I have met, and this is Haight's point, is that there are some conservatives who say, yes, that's good, but more foundational is the question of whether the policies that we enact promote individual liberty as opposed to oppression for people who would otherwise be free. And so what we get into, whether we put it this way or not, is this conflict, not over what's good, but over which good comes first, and that's the source of a lot of our division. It's really, really, really hard to resolve a problem like that. So how do you do it? How do you decide which value to prioritize? And here's Christianity's answer. You have to start with the fact that human brains aren't actually powerful enough to decide and to figure out on their own what is really, truly, morally good and beautiful and true and what they should base their lives on. That's just Romans 1. We try. We give it our very best effort, but we get off track along the way. So we end up doing things like in Paul's day, worshiping idols. But the good news is that God then gives us the Bible to teach us what's true. We can read it. It's there. This is the great gift of Scripture to us. It tells us what's true from God on the written page. That's Romans 2. But the only human being who has ever managed to actually live up to it happens to have been Jesus. That's Romans 3. He's the righteous one. And that this is why Paul says that at the end of the day, the only people who can be righteous, innocent, and also really know what's good and what's bad are the people who are in Jesus, the people who have Jesus helping them, renewing their mind, leading them in all truth by the power of his spirit. So in sum, if you really want to know, you have to depend. You have to depend on God to show you and to teach you to counsel you in the way that you should go. But all of this, God's glory, the fruit of our righteousness, maintaining innocence, actually knowing what's good and what's bad, starts on something else, starts with something else, a different principle and foundation, and that's love. This is another thing about Armstrong's life that I learned that I I think kind of grabs me, especially on a day like Father's Day. When Neil Armstrong pushed himself to excel over the course of the career, of his career as a pilot and then as as an astronaut, it was his love for his daughter that drove him probably more than anything else. Have have any of you seen uh, the movie Last Man with Ryan Gosling? Yeah, I I don't wanna give away too many spoilers, but the movie starts with the death of Armstrong's daughter while he's still a pilot before he's, he's been an astronaut. But he's about to be inducted into the space program and, and his daughter dies at a very young age and it's really tragic. And while he's being interviewed, you know, being considered for the astronaut training program, the guys around the table ask him, Neil, do you think that the death of your daughter will affect your ability to function in this program? And here's his answer. It would be unreasonable to think that it wouldn't. And then it just kind of vanishes off screen for two hours. You almost don't think about it with all the hectic, the crazy frenetic activity that it takes for Armstrong to go from being a new, uh, new inductee into the astronaut training program to being the first man to set foot on the moon. But then when he gets there, he's carrying his daughter's bracelet in his hand. It's the love of the father that drives him, that makes him who he is. 
Without love, none of us can live the Christian life any more than Armstrong could have driven himself to the moon and back on his own power. Love is the whole structure of the Christian life. It's the thing that moves us from here to there. I've referenced this text a couple times now, but I think I I just can't get away from it. Everybody should go and memorize 1 John 4, where what, what, what we learn so clearly from John is that God is love. His nature is perfect love. And because his nature is perfect love, his every action expresses perfect love without reservation, without even possibility for improvement. Everything that God does is perfect love. And that would be the start of a fantastic worship song. I would sing that song every day. But then John goes on and he says, because God is love, you all need to love one another. Okay, so how do I pull that off? (laughs) How do I love one another the way that God loves me? Because I am unfortunately not perfect love, and here's John's answer. First is that love comes from God. You don't have to drum it up on your own power and strength. Love comes from him to us. And what John goes on to say then is whenever you see somebody acting with love, with true Christian love, the kind of love that God exemplified when he called the world into being so that the whole world would get to share in his glory, or the kind of love that Jesus displays on the cross, when he dies for wicked and unrighteous people who don't love him, but he would rather die than watch them die, John says whenever you see human beings do that, this is what you know, that God dwells in that person. This is Christian love, and this is why, at the end of the day, for all of our Christian lives, love is the rocket ship. It's the launch vehicle that gets us from Earth orbit into the heavens. Apart from it, we are grounded. And I think it's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in that classic wedding text, that love excels everything else. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So if I could just summarize what Paul is saying in that text, he's basically saying that what he's praying for, the, for Philippians and Philippians 1 is the exact opposite of what he's just said. Without love, his knowledge would be worthless. Without love, any innocence or righteousness that he could have produced on his own would have been worthless. Love over and before all things because without them, it's all just gonna come crashing back to earth. Worship team, and uh, you can start to come up. Prayer team, you can start to get ready. So I've, I've burned through a lot of big ideas really, really quickly. In a perfect world, maybe I would have done a sermon on each one of those words, but I want to show you again how they all fit together, how Paul's prayer is really a coherent thing. It's not just a bunch of nice ideas strung next to each other. If you start with love, the nature of God perfected in human beings, starting to direct you up and to live and to love as God loves, you're eventually going to find that you need to actually discern what's good from what's bad. You have to grow in knowledge as well. Your love won't be undirected. It will be guided toward the truth. 
That's the work of Christ in you. And if you actually get to the point where you know the difference between good and bad, because Christ is at work within you, showing you, teaching you, counseling you the way that you should go, you're hearing his voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, then eventually that's going to keep you innocent away from the world, and it's going to produce the active fruit of righteousness in you as you do the things that Jesus teaches you and counsels you to do. And the great good news of all of that is that the fruit of your righteousness is going to redound to the glory of God. This is the purpose that he gave all of us when he created us, is to glorify him. And as we glorify him and he is known for who he is, as the awesome creator, the awesome savior, the awesome redeemer, the awesome perfecter of the whole natural world, you and I will get to share in that glory. So it begins, love, knowledge, innocence, righteousness, glory. So this is my question today. Where in your Christian life do you find that your rocket ship needs fine-tuning? Is your love deficient? Are you actively, when you look at your life, do you find yourself on a day-to-day basis being able to say, yes, I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself? So if you're not, first, repent. Ask God for help. Remember that this, above all else, is God's work in you, that your love is not your own any more than your works are your own, that when you wait on him and call on him, he will produce his powerful love in you. Love comes from God, not from you or I. It's the first of the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, so if your love is working, do you feel that maybe you're lacking in insight, wisdom, knowledge? Remember Proverbs 19.2, zeal without knowledge is not good, so study to show yourself approved. Open your Bibles daily, listen to sermons, I mean, attend classes at a church like this one, maybe even read a book, but also remember that what Paul says in Colossians 2 is true. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus, so if you have Christ Jesus living in you, you have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you find that you lack knowledge, ask That's James's advice. If you're lacking in wisdom, ask, because God gladly wants to give it to you. Do you see then, if you have love and if you have knowledge, are you walking in innocence and righteousness? Are you finding that increasingly you avoid sin and turn to what's good? Are you finding that when you have opportunities for good, you cling to them, you jump into them, and you see that as you live a good life, God is glorified? If you find yourself falling short there, ask again, that God will give you the power through Jesus Christ to live as your master did. So what I'm saying, in sum, boil it all down to this. One sentence challenge for you this week. Let Philippians 1, 9 to 11 guide the way you pray. Because all of this begins as Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Think about how you pray and how you pray for yourself. What do you ask for? Do you ask to grow and increase in love as the fruit of the Spirit? Do you actively ask for innocence and righteousness? Do you actively ask for knowledge, for his glory? If not, then Philippians 1 gives us a great way to direct our prayers. I like to pray sometimes with a prayer rule that tells me point by point what I should pray in the day. Try making this your prayer rule for a while. Ask according to Scripture's direction for yourself because whatever you, would, you and I would think to ask for yourselves is not as good as what Scripture would have for us. 
finally, I don't take it as a given that everybody who's here today in a room this large agrees with everything that I've just said or even necessarily understood it. But I think it's very likely that there are some people who came in the door today who were struggling, they were trying to find a way to live their best life, but they found that it just wasn't working out. Maybe what you've learned from hearing me talk today is that God, the Bible, identify a different goal for your life and a purpose for your life than the one that you assumed and that it's the glory of God. And so as you don't live for the glory of God, you find yourself hurting the people around you. You find yourself getting stuck in painful circumstances that you just can't find a way out of. And this is God's answer for you right now. You are trying to do God's work. You actually can't accomplish any of those things on your own strength. But if you come to him and ask for help, he'll give you the power to live a good life. This is how you go about taking him up on that offer. The first thing you have to do is ask him to forgive you because you know if you've tried to live a good life and failed that you've hurt yourself, you've hurt people around you, you've hurt the natural world, you haven't done the good that you wished you could have done. The good news is that God says if we ask him to forgive us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us, to clean us, to wash us from everything that's unrighteous, everything that's not like Jesus. So admit that you need his help. You can trust Jesus to help you. The Bible says again, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me, I cannot do this. Commit yourself to then to live your life the way that Jesus lived. Because coming to Jesus and asking him forgiveness is the first step on the way of what Jesus calls discipleship. He is giving you a whole new goal for your life and it will take you commitment every day to live up to it. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's any of you here in the room today who you feel like that's you, you wanna know more about Jesus, you wanna walk with him, you wanna, you wanna try to live your life according to God's principles and his guidance instead of your own. Nobody's looking around, please just go ahead and put your hand up. I see one, two, three, some of you in the balcony, some of you on the main floor. Okay, you can put your hands down. Everyone, you can go ahead and open uh, your eyes, raise your heads. We're about to sing two songs. When we sing these songs down in this corner over here and in that corner over there, there's gonna be a few people who are just gonna stand there and they're gonna be ready to talk with you. We call them our prayer team. Please walk forward, talk to these people, tell them what you just did. But I'm gonna say this too. Nobody's gonna be looking too hard at you because it's during this time of prayer that everyone else in the congregation who has something that they wanna to talk to God about will also come forward and will also pray with these people. So nobody's gonna be looking at you sideways. If you put your hand up and you came here with somebody, walk down here with that person. You, have, you don't have to make the walk alone. All we're gonna do is talk with you, pray with you, and give you a little book. Now, uh, everyone, please bow your heads in prayer. And again, if you do have anything that you would like to stand uh, with someone in prayer regarding, go and talk to these people as we worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for every good thing that you've said and done. Thank you that your arm's not short to save, that you can use even my weakness to advance your kingdom, and you can use all of our weakness to exemplify your strength. Help us to live lives of love, of innocence and righteousness, of knowledge, Lord, the sort of lives that you created us to glorify you in and with and by. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.